Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director for Lectures and Seminars. Thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to take this time to remind everyone to silence your cell phones. And for those who are watching the program online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Hosting today's program is Hella Dale. She is the Senior Fellow in Public Diplomacy here at the Heritage Foundation. And with that, we can begin our program. Thank you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and to this um, very important program today on the anniversary of Ronald Reagan's speech to the British Parliament at Westminster. A very forward-looking, great-looking, um, great sounding speech, uh, which foresaw the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Of course, the end of the Cold War didn't mean the end of challenges to um, the United States and to our allies in the West. So we are here today to talk about um, a new set of challenges that we are facing and um, focusing especially on the concept of sharp power. Um, we talk a lot about soft power, um, meaning for many of us who study this, uh, a benign alternative to um, kinetic power, to uh, military power as a way to influence um, publics and nations abroad. However, um, the way we look at it, soft power as public diplomacy, people-to-people -people programs, educational exchanges, student exchanges, and all that, um, broadcasting news to foreign publics, um, the way that we look at it um, is very different from the way some of our international competitors look at it. Uh, authoritarian regimes um, find that the way that we exchange ideas, our freedoms, are actually um, a weakness that can be exploited. China and Russia, in particular, are the focus of our discussion today. Uh, their governments still challenge the West and seek to influence people with information. Um, they seek to influence our people, whereas they are very good at erecting barriers to us reaching into their societies and communities. With this new report from soft power to sharp power, rising authoritarian influence in the democratic world, the National Endowment for Democracy has focused attention on this global growing threat. 
uh, it, their new study examines Russian and Chinese influence in four emerging and vulnerable democracies, Argentina, Peru, Poland, and Slovakia. Uh, to borrow a brief quote from the, from the study, while there are differences in the shape and tone of the Chinese and Russian approaches, both stem from an ideological model that privileges state power over individual liberty and is fundamentally hostile to free expression, open debate, and independent thought. Today we have with us one of the authors of the study, will be our first speaker, Christopher Walker, who is Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, prior to joining the NED, he was Vice President for Strategic Analysis uh, at Freedom House and a Senior Associate at the East-West Institute. Uh, he has also been a Program Manager at the European Journalism Network. So he has a very deep expertise in this area. Uh, next, we will have Peter Mattis, who is a research fellow with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Uh, he was previously with the Jamestown Foundation editing its China Brief and a fellow in its China program. And he was also a graduate research fellow at the National Bureau of Asian Research. Um, our final speaker will be our very own Dr. Na Gardner. He is the director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, and Bernard and Barbara Lomas Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Prior to joining Heritage, um, uh, Dr. Gardner was a foreign policy researcher for British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and uh, uh, played a big role in researching her book, Statecraft. He was an aide to Lady Thatcher from 2000 to 2002 and advised her on numerous international policy issues. Um, he has testified many times before Congress on foreign policy issues, most recently on the impact of Brexit and US-UK and the US-UK Free Trade Agreement. And <clears throat> he has advised the executive branch of the United States government on the Anglo-American special relationship and US policy towards Europe. Um, so, uh, in addition to all that, um, Niall has also, for years, uh, been um, the director of the center that hosts our Russia studies and is therefore particularly well-placed to comment on the Russian slice of this particular program. So thank you all for coming. It is a delight to have you here today. And uh, you can see the Chris, or you can come up here and stand, whatever you prefer. I'll probably stay here. That's okay. Well, thank you so much, Hel, for that kind uh, introduction. I'd like to also thank uh, Jim Carafano and Ed Fulner, who were uh, instrumental in uh, organizing this idea. And I'm very appreciative of that. Um, Hella, in her introdu introductory remarks, indicated that uh, the end of the Cold War didn't mean the end of challenges to uh, free societies. And I think that's uh, really a central idea in the work we've done here. I think what we've really failed to appreciate in recent years is that we've entered a period of contestation and competition. And it's a competition in which, in many respects, it only seems like one side is competing. And I think we had seen this in many ways um, reflected in, in the public sphere in the sorts of areas that 
are typically associated with public diplomacy, but as well in the more general media sphere in terms of how ideas are transmitted, how they're understood, how ordinary citizens understand the world. Um, Russia and China both have invested enormous uh, resources towards this end in the recent past, and I think this was um, not uh, appreciated deeply enough in terms of how uh, this could shape the uh, changing landscape. And I would also note that this is relevant because as states like Russia and China have become more repressive domestically, uh, they become more ambitious internationally. And I think this is also fundamental to understanding the um, the framework that we're operating in. And, and Hela, I think, picked um, a terrific excerpt from our report, which talked about uh, the sorts of um, values and interests that inform the authorities in both Russia and China, which really does not privilege um, human freedom and freedom of expression. And I would argue that today, as much as anything, they're projecting the values they um, pursue domestically beyond their borders in an era of globalization. Um, digital democratization has had this effect of allowing these sorts of powers to be much more engaged and involved uh, beyond their borders, including the democracies. And given this context, when we uh, started the initiative that led to the report that's titled Sharp Power, Rising Authoritarian Influence, uh, we recognized that the landscape was changing in some pretty fundamental ways and that it was much more possible in the current environment for um, the sharing of information, both for good and for ill, but when the information is coming from a state that has a very narrow, one could argue, uh, politically monopolized system, this gives it a different character. And um, while I think everyone is keen to have a plurality of voices, uh, over time it became clearer that these often uh, unitary uh, sorts of efforts, which includes not only media, but uh, surrogates that operate in what we would call the civil society space, um, academics, uh, the university environment. Uh, these were all environments in which, as Helen noted in her remarks, um, in China and Russia today are being locked down to external influence. And at the same time, the authorities in those countries have become uh, highly participatory, if I want to use that term, uh, beyond their borders. And I think having a clearer understanding of the implications of this is is extremely important for our own freedom and security now. And this was something I, I would argue is is different from the Cold War era where, just to give an example, um, certainly in China's case, I think this is true in, in the Russian case as well, the what we might call the, the state capitalist hybrid systems that both of those countries operate on are fantastically integrated into uh, any number of democracies in a variety of ways. This is true in the transatlantic space, but I would note that um, one of the things we focused on in our report was uh, fragile younger democracies. Um, we looked at countries in Latin America. We only looked at two in this effort. I think there's a crying need to look more carefully at many other democracies in Latin America. Uh, we didn't look at Africa there, too. Um, this is a highly under-scrutinized sphere, especially with respect to China. And in uh, the European space, 
We didn't have the opportunity in this report to look at southeastern Europe, but the degree of engagement today in the Balkans from not only China and Russia, but Iran, the Gulf states, Turkey, and so forth, has grown enormously. And some of it is is fine, I suspect, in terms of investment, in terms of engagement, in terms of offering some um, uh, dynamism to the media space, perhaps. But here, too, I think un- until we look at this more closely and have an understanding of precisely what the content of this uh, sort of engagement is, it's very hard to um, have a sense of whether it would have a more positive salutary, uh, salutary impact in these settings or something that really wouldn't contribute to democratic development and freedom. In the context of this state capitalist hybrid idea, it's really important to, to remember that um, Chinese firms, even those that are nominally private, um, aren't, their success is not judged only by the profits they generate, but um, their obligations to the Chinese party state. And I think this is also something that we've um, underscrutinized, something that Peter knows very well and he may speak to in his remarks. Um, but this too, I think this notion of, of understanding who the interlocutors are, uh, what their ultimate obligations are, uh, whether they're authentically uh, private and autonomous is something that in the last quarter century, I think as we just kind of raced forward with integration uh, under the assumption this would ipso facto be mutually beneficial, uh, this is something that really got lost in the mix and requires, I think, more uh, thoughtful scrutiny as we uh, go forward. Um, I would emphasize, and this is really where we devoted our attention in our report, um, the, the realm of free political expression, because we um, uh, didn't devote energy to a host of other areas that we could have. We, we focused on uh, the media, the university environment and academia, uh, the think tank environment and culture in the countries we looked at. And these are, I would argue, the, the, the sectors in which um, societies forge their ideas, they understand the world. Uh, the Confucius Institutes have gotten an enormous amount of, of uh, attention, uh, I think properly so, in, in the recent past. But this is just one small part of this discussion in understanding the nature of um, – engagement that comes from authoritarian states which themselves do not permit political pluralism at home, but which are participating uh, vigorously in the open space of the democracies. So I might just conclude with a few thoughts. I think um, the resource asymmetry that we now see, uh, I'll just use China as an example because at least we have some frame of reference from some of the scholarship that's been done. But in Russia's case as well, uh, it's very considerable. The um, investments in outward-facing engagement in the media and information space, in China's case, is, is understood to be at a minimum by the scholars that look at this most closely in the range of about $10 billion annually. It's a lot of money. Uh, this number, uh, which was established by David Shambaugh, of George Washington University is already quite a few years old, and I think he himself would say it's probably changed. There really is very little to suggest that that number has shrunk by all outward appearances. If anything, under Xi Jinping, these sorts of investments seem to be increasing. 
Um, the numbers are very opaque, and getting a, a handle on what Russia invests in these sorts of things is extremely difficult. But here, too, it's undoubtedly in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that's invested in these sort of things, and not just the most visible sorts of um, instruments like RT and Sputnik, but there's a wide range of um, similar sorts of efforts that are out there. And um, I think there was a time a number of years ago where people were extremely dismissive of these enterprises. And it's not to say they're always um, supremely effective or that they always meet uh, whatever their stated objectives are. But I think we underestimated the impact they could have, especially in the digital age, where the best research and analysis on this points to the opportunities to um, shape and guide the digital space and social media in particular. And I think this was underestimated um, until recently. And now we're seeing a little bit more, I would say, um, correctly aimed sort of research on these sorts of things. So where do we find ourselves now? in dealing with these sorts of issues that operate between what is customarily understood as soft power, this effort to win hearts and minds for states to achieve a positive image, and hard power, which is customarily viewed as um, kinetic or coercive efforts. I think we came to the conclusion in our effort that there is something uh, out there that falls in between the space, and hence we settled on the term sharp power. I think... Um, the democracies are slowly but still insufficiently coming to understand that they're in a new era of contestation. Um, the authoritarian regimes we've discussed, um, in my view, have been sprinting pretty fast in recent years, and we're still um, more or less at the starting blocks in terms of our response. Uh, and this is, um, I think, part of what has contributed to the democracies being a little bit behind in the um, ideas competition now. It's not the only explanation, but it's certainly uh, part of it. And um, the efforts that the authoritarians are taking to speak to the world, I think what we've seen is they have made some headway in how uh, the understanding of democracy and freedom is shaped by virtue of the ways in which the authoritarian efforts assail and try to undermine these ideas. Uh, this really deserves a more, I would say, concerted response. Um, free and open societies will inevitably continue to be exposed to these sorts of influence and interference efforts, uh, sharp power uh, sorts of efforts. Uh, but citizens' understanding of these sorts of efforts uh, really needs to improve to understand how it operates before we can devise the sorts of uh, responses and feel more confident that we can defend our own values and interests. So I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Concerted response. I like that idea. Um, Peter. Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> Thank you very much for having me, Hella, and to speak on the stage. And Chris, I think you ended on a good place to pick up from because the effort what I'm going to discuss is the effort to build influence and exercise power from, from within the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, because this is an area where we don't have a lot of knowledge and we don't necessarily understand this part of the, of the party particularly well. As one of the participants in a House Armed Services Committee hearing on this subject, when he was asked about where are we on, 
on the different, on say the Russia problem or the China problem. The speaker on the Russia problem said, well, we're probably sort of flunked a few grades, but we're back in, you know, early part of high school or, or middle school. And the person speaking on China said, I think we're still struggling to enter kindergarten. Um, I hope it's not quite that bad, but we do, we don't really understand this part of the party as well as we should, given how long it's been a critical piece of it. So what I'm talking about here is not about economic statecraft, not public diplomacy, not soft power in its inherently passive and attractive role, but simply this, the, the elements of the party that focus on expanding China's influence and the ability to exercise power outside of the party. That's one of the key distinctions. It's not inside or outside the People's Republic. It's inside or outside the party. Another key point that I think you should come away with from this is that what the, what the CCP does is not something like covert action, which requires special authorities, a presidential finding, consultations with leaders in Congress um, that occurs outside of a normal policy process. If it was normal policy, you wouldn't, need to, you wouldn't need to use covert action for it. Whereas what the CCP does is, in fact, a routine part of the party's day-to-day business that is managed from the, from the center and the leadership of the party. The second, a second point that I think is worth walking away from, although it's hard to it's hard to get into this, the biggest change is not about changes to CCP policy or to what they're doing, but rather the amount of resources that they're able to devote to this effort. So one of the questions is why why would you have to go go through and interact with the world in this way? It's not just about it's not just about control. It's not just about different views of of freedom of expression, but it comes down to the way that the CCP generates or thinks about national security and and state security threats. And this is largely by its absence. In fact, if you go read the national security law, it's the relative absence of threats to things like the territorial integrity of, of the PRC, but also things like the CCP's ability to govern. And what you, what I think the important takeaways from this are is that the threats are not defined by the borders. Again, it's not something that is about, that starts with territorial integrity and moves outward. It is about the party itself. And this means there aren't necessarily firm geographical boundaries on where threats are or where, the, how they need to be dealt with. Um, and it also means that these threats occur in the realm of ideas. And if you're dealing with kind of a limit, if you're dealing with this kind of limitless perspective, it pushes you towards preemption. And if you think about threats coming from the world of ideas, this it's a simple point: the pre, they have to preempt threats in the world of ideas, and that means something like the existence of a practicing democracy, and the ability of those ideas to be transmitted inside the PRC or inside the party is a problem that has to be dealt with before it can be before there are deliberate actions to do that i divide i divide the influence system in in the party into sort of three three distinct parts at the top level you have the party leadership um, one of the members of the standing committee of the politburo uh, is the chairman of the chinese people's political consultative conference or the the cppcc this is an organization that we've typically dismissed. Um, you, when you find it in news reports around March when it has one of its big annual meetings, you'll typically see something like an honorary advisory body or um, 
something that doesn't have any sort of real influence or power. And to one one point, it's true. It doesn't have much power, but that's not the point. The point is to bring – this is where people come together and sort of hear the ideas of the party and and get the talking points, if you will, for how they're going to interact with with foreigners. And the chairman of this body has always been someone of of some importance. Um, You might say that if you look through its history – you can see such political lightweights as Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Zhou Enlai, um, Ding Yingchao, Li Ruan. Um, the last, the departing member, Yu Zhengsheng, was the Deng family proxy in elite politics after the Deng, after Deng Xiaoping exited the stage. And the current man, Wang Yang, is someone who's widely known for his competence in party affairs. There are also a number of others involved in this. There's the Vice Premier Sun Chunlan, who was previously the director of, of the United Front Work Department. There is the head, there are the heads of the Propaganda Department and the heads of the United Front Work Department. Both of these people, or rather the three, the three latter ones, serve on the Politburo, and the heads of the two departments are on the Secretariat. The Politburo doesn't meet more than once a month. Um, unless it's an emergency. So mu- much of the governing in China is done by the secretariat. And so in an area of routine policy where the parameters are already established, it's these people that make the decisions. And if you go back for the last two, about 30 years, the head of the propaganda department and the head of the United Front Work Department have sat on the secretariat. It tells you that this is not something special or something different. This is sort of a key part of the decision-making in the party and how they look at and interact with the world. I touched on what the CPPCC is, and it also has provincial bodies and local bodies. So the two billionaires in Australia who have stirred up so much trouble, they are not even people who are part of the national body at the center. They're from the provincial and local levels. And when you add up the number of people that are in it, you end up with a number roughly around 615 or 617,000, according, according to their numbers that they, that they publish. The propaganda department is a critical feature of defining ideology, of controlling the news outlets, and it's involved abroad um, in some activities like buying up radio stations or, or controlling or directly controlling media outlets. The United Front Work Department is one that we don't really have a, a good counterpart for, and it doesn't describe very well. If you know sort of Leninist theory about the party vanguard and how how this is supposed to function, the United Front Work Department, you might say, is the mediator between the party core and the social groups outside the party that need to be controlled or, or given party guidance. So again, this point is, is clear. This isn't about inside or outside the PRC. It's about inside or outside the party. Mao Zedong described their work somewhat more eloquently, and it's still cited on their website. If you look in the About Us section, it's the first quote that's there, is that the United Front Work Department is supposed to mobilize friends to strike at the party's enemies. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, but an organization that reports to or that is a part of this United Front Work Department probably does not belong on a Western University campus with values of freedom of expression and academic freedom of inquiry. There are a number of other ministries involved, and this is the, sort of the lowest level. Um, the Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Civil Affairs, the Ministry of State Security, which is the Intelligence Service. And it's simply that all of these different ministries have have capabilities, have, org- 
have institutions that are under their control that might be useful for interacting with the outside world. So the parts of this influence-building system are able to, to call upon them to use them as a resource, to, as, a, as a jumping-off point, because this the Ministry of State Security might have a front organization that's particularly useful in the United States, but the Ministry of Education might have more capacity in a country just picking one at, at random and say Canada. And so this, this kind of flexibility in the system allows them to kind of mix and match and be practical about what sort of resources they want to bring to bear and, and how to best move them. There's a f- <clears throat> there are three basic sort of modes of activity, I think, that are worth, that are worth mentioning. Um, shaping the context, targeting the political core, and controlling the Chinese diaspora. Controlling the Chinese diaspora is probably the one to put up top simply because this is, this, the reason why the party considers it so, so dangerous is that these are the people with the cultural literacy and fluency to translate dangerous ideas into a Chinese context and push those, push those back into the, into the system. And this is one of those areas where, where direct, FBI director Christopher Wei was right that Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party's policy is a whole of society approach. But that's the policy and it doesn't mean that everyone stands up and, and lines, lines up behind the party. It doesn't happen inside China. It certainly doesn't happen outside China. But because that's the case, the policy is aggressive and, and there's a constant effort to move into community organizations, to take them over, um, to crowd out Chinese language media, um, to take over radio stations, to put pressure on advertisers if they're connected with any of the independent outlets, to mobilize this community for political props. And they know full well what they're doing as the party, that this does create a rift between overseas Chinese and the community and the larger communities in which they're they live in, and they just don't care. So in one sense, a, a piece of this debate that we should remember is that if any time that we're not trying to, trying to build a barrier between the party's activities and the overseas diaspora communities, that's a, that's a form of racist on our, racism on our end, that we are, not simp- we are treating them as second-class citizens because we are not giving them the liberties that they're guaranteed under the laws and constitution. With respect to shaping the context, there are a number of different ways in which they do this. One of the most notable ones that a lot of people have heard about is is the manipulation of access through visas. Um, And before, say 20 years ago, you knew exactly who had been blacklisted. You knew exactly what they had done. And now there are larger and larger numbers of people who have had trouble, but very few people are willing to talk about it, in part because institutions have been unwilling to support those scholars and analysts who have who have lost their access to China, and so it's just one of it's one of those things that's much more difficult to get a handle on how widespread it is, but it's gone from sort of people at the peak of their career or in the middle of their career, down to people who are now research assistants and associates at some of the think tanks in D.C., for example. There's a the manipulation of access in, in the form of interviews. Um, in one. I guess if you look at how the parties interacted with the world, it hasn't necessarily recruited agents of influence the way this Soviet measures act, the Soviet Active Measures campaign did, you know, people to produce the content. But it did manipulate 
it did seek to influence agents to, to bring them in to say, yeah, here's what's going on, and showing them a bit of a Potemkin village. And that way they could go out and write it themselves, and you, they would provide a different picture. The most famous of these are, are people like Edgar Snow and, and Theodore White, who could be incredibly laudatory of the CCP because they only saw a small part of what was taking place in Yan'an or in, in the communist base areas, whereas they had almost unlimited access in the Guomindong area, so they could see the corruption, they could see the problems, um, and they reported you know, on what they saw. The difference was in one part they saw the iceberg and in one part they saw the ocean layer. Um, and lastly, there is an effort to target the political core, and it, and it occurs through a number of different means. One is to cultivate local politicians because today's city councilman is tomorrow's congressman. Um, and although we have sort of fewer examples here, there was a leaked ASIO report in Australia that said that there were at least at least 10 people at local levels in Australian government and party politics that were suspected of being, or not suspected, that they believe they knew had been cultivated by the CCP to pursue a political career and, and to move up. And if you follow the politics around um, the senator who resigned, Sam Dastiari, and Huang Xiongmo and Cha Cha Wing, you can find a network of people who have spread through the Australian political system. And it's a small number, and I think everyone concerned there knows who they are. So it's, it's not an unknown problem or one that can't be addressed. The point is simply that this is something that this is one way in which the party has operated. The second... A second really important way to do this is, has been to make businesses their proxies or their constituencies. And you can see this in the, the opening of UK relations with the People's Republic of China. You can see it in the opening of, of Sino-Japanese relations. In fact, Richard McGregor's book, Asia's Reckoning, includes a wonderful quote by Zhou Enlai talking about how we shouldn't deal with, with the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, um, but we should deal with Japanese businesses first because if we cultivate that as a constituency, the politicians will follow. And, and there's an extra benefit that people who have, have made money or have succeeded in China automatically have credibility in our societies as knowing how things work, um, even if their success may have had little to do with what they actually knew and more to do with what the party chose to give them as an opportunity. And I think that's a good, a good place to end in terms of the, the scope. That's quite, quite a scope, yes. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you very much for those, those extensive remarks. Uh, Niall, over to you. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us uh, today. Um, it's fitting that we're here today, almost 36 years after President Reagan's historic address to the British members of Parliament on June 8, 1982, a stirring defense of freedom delivered by President Reagan. Uh, it's also the 74th anniversary of the D-Day landings in Normandy on June 6, 1944, a reminder of the, the immense uh, debt uh, of gratitude owed by Europe and the free world uh, to the tremendous sacrifice made by U.S., British, Canadian, other allied forces who gave their lives for uh, for, for freedom and also a, a tremendous reminder as well of the uh, of the great importance of the, the transatlantic alliance and the bonds that unite 
the United States with uh, with all of the nations of of, of Europe. Um, and it's um, it's very fitting that we're having this discussion today about this latest uh, NED uh, report, which which I think is a very powerful uh, report. Actually, in fact, I think it's one of the most important. Uh, reports that I that I've read uh, this year and and over the last few years actually, uh, because it's um, it's an insight into the scale of the threat that we face from totalitarian and authoritarian uh, regimes. In this case, this report uh, focuses upon uh, the nefarious role played by both Russia and and China in many different parts uh, of the world, um, and. I'd like to um, tie in this report, I think, with the, you know, the big picture of um, the conflict that we are engaged in against, um, you know, the Putin regime at this at this time, a regime that seeks to destabilize societies across the free world, a regime that uh, seeks to uh, confront the ideals of freedom and liberty that. Uh, make the United States and, and the free world the, the, the great beacons of, of, of liberty today. Um, and so I'd like to sort of tie all that, um, all that together. But I, I do hope this report will be read widely by members of Congress uh, here in, here in Washington, also members of the administration, um, as well. It's, it's an, it's a compelling, uh, report and it's, uh, it's a wake up call, I think, to, uh, to policymakers, um, on both sides of the of the, of the Atlantic, so I, so I do hope that it will be uh, very widely uh, read. And in my my view, this report um, underscores the fact that we cannot treat Russia as a potential partner or, or ally. This was the the fundamental failure, of course, of the of the Russian reset uh, strategy of the last administration. And also explains why any you know, overtures by by the present U.S. administration towards Moscow, um, in in my view, would be highly precarious and likely to end in in failure. Um, this report makes it crystal clear that Moscow has utter contempt for uh, everything the free world uh, stands for. In, in the words of of this report, um, Moscow and Beijing share, and I quote here, an ideological model that privileges state power over individual liberty and is fundamentally hostile to free expression, open debate, and independent thought. And I think that, you know, that line really fully encapsulates the, uh, the, the tremendous power of this, uh, of this report. And um, Putin's Russia is increasingly combining uh, sharp power with greater levels of hard power uh, projection uh, across the world. And, and I cite, you know, a few, a few examples of that here, um, for example, Russia supplying a missile to insurgent forces in eastern Ukraine, shooting down a Malaysian airline's Boeing 777 MH17 in July 2014, killing all 289 people on board, and this was an act of, of mass murder um, carried out uh, with a with a Russian missile supplied to forces armed, funded, trained, etc. by Moscow. Um, Russia invaded Crimea, launched a war of aggression in eastern Ukraine that has claimed 10,000 lives in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Russia recently launched a chemical weapons attack on British soil in the uh, the city of Salisbury uh, that could have endangered uh, thousands of British uh, lives. Uh, The use of a chemical agent known as Novichok, which is one of the most dangerous chemical weapons in the world. And this was an attack on 
uh, on on British soil uh, by the by the Russian uh, government. Uh, Russia's backed the Assad regime in Syria, a mass murdering dictatorship uh, that has used chemical weapons against its own people. Five hundred thousand uh, people have died in the uh, the civil war in in Syria. Russia has played a big part in that. Uh, Russia constantly threatens uh, NATO allies in in Europe, flies nuclear bombers off the coast of Britain and other European nations in effort to intimidate, masses troops on the borders of the Baltic states. This is the reality that we are facing uh, facing today. And so um, the the hard power threat, the the soft power threat, and the sharp power threat are all are all working in alignment. Uh, and we must be aware of the gravity of this of this menace and be willing to uh, fully uh, confront it. Uh, strikingly, the, the report does have um, a lot of focus on, on Poland, and th- this is a particularly interesting um, uh, chapter and an important chapter to, um, uh, to read. And there's a detailed assessment of Russian attempts to influence political debates in, in Poland to impact a civil, uh, civil society. I have to say, though, that, you know, having um, met with a very wide range of uh, Polish uh, government uh, politicians, political leaders, uh, national security officials, um, I, I'm less concerned about the, the situation in, in Poland because I, I think that you do have a government and, and a overall, a, you know, Polish a public that is fully aware of the gravity of the Russian threat. And, and I think, um, you know, Fully prepared to confront that uh, that threat, and where necessary, even to um, you know to stand up and fight uh, to to defend their their freedom, to lay down their lives uh, in doing so. So I'm you know I'm less less concerned about the um, the potential sort of uh, ability of, of Russia to sort of undermine the fabric of democracy in um, in Poland or in. Uh, or in the Baltic states, or, or in countries that uh, threw off the shackles of Soviet um, uh, communism, um, I'm actually uh, more concerned about Russian interference, in fact, in, in Western Europe at, at the moment, and the fact that you do have um, numerous political parties, some of them in power in places such as you know, Greece, Austria, uh, Italy, for example, who, who are distinctly pro-Russian. Um, and uh, And I think that that's something that we really have to watch very, very, uh, very carefully. Um, and there's no doubt about it that, um, you know, Russia's tentacles spread throughout uh, Western, uh, Western Europe. Uh, and we are seeing, I think, a dangerous uh, slide in, in Western Europe towards more pro-Russian attitudes, towards an appeasement mentality in many parts of, of, uh, of Europe. And one only has to look, for example, at the leader of the Labour Party in, in Great Britain, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, who in opinion polls not not that far off uh, well the labor party is just just slightly behind the conservative party in opinion polls um and uh, you know jeremy corbyn has a long record of uh, track record of pro russian uh, sympathies he's frequently appeared on russia today the uh, the russian propaganda uh, channel um and ahead of the the 2017 uh, uk general election um a sunday Times investigation in London showed that there were 6,500 Russian Twitter accounts set up by Moscow to support uh, Corbyn uh, in that election. Um, and so, so the Russians seek to influence um, elections and debates uh, all over uh, all over Europe. 
Um, and um, I think it's, it's a reminder of the, of the scale of the challenge that, that we're facing, of course, in Europe at this time. And, of course, the Russians as well have, uh, have also attempted to influence political debates as well in, in the United States. Um, I'm also concerned about the, um, the rising appeasement mentality within uh, the European Commission. For example, Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, recently called for an end to what he described as Russia bashing, and he talked about a new accommodation with Putin's, uh, Putin's Russia. And he also spoke recently about, um, about the unreliability in his views of, of the United States as an ally for, uh, for, for Europe, and therefore uh, Europe must look increasingly towards Russia. Uh, and so this is very, very dangerous uh, talk. And I'm also reminded of, uh, you know, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, recently um, urging Washington to water down sanctions against uh, uh, against Moscow um, in, in an effort not to uh, upset the Russians over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, deal. Um, and so on, on many fronts in, in, in Europe, I think that, you know, the Russians are, are combining, uh, you know, sharp power uh, efforts with with also outright efforts at intimidation, also to influence, um, you know, political debates and thinking in, uh, in, in Europe. And I think we must be on our guard. And I think a key aim that the Russians have, of course, is to undermine support for, for the United States, for, for the NATO alliance, for the transatlantic alliance. This is really at the heart of Russian uh, strategic uh, thinking. And um, this, this report, I think, makes tremendous recommendations for, for combating uh, uh, sharp power throughout this, uh, this report, um, including, uh, you know, supporting a robust independent civil society, reaffirming support for democratic values and ideals, something that um, Ronald Reagan emphasized in his Westminster uh, Minster speech. Um, but I, I would add to that the need uh, to um, reaffirm support for NATO and for the transatlantic alliance. And, and Reagan also emphasized these points in his Westminster uh, address, because at the end of the day, it is the NATO alliance that keeps the Russian bear at bay uh, in, in Europe. Um, and, and the Russians seek over and over again, all over Europe, to undermine support for, uh, for, uh, for NATO. And uh, NATO is what uh, the Russians really, uh, really fear. Uh, I think at the same time as well, um, it's vital that uh, leaders across the free world stand with uh, stand with dissidents uh, fighting for their for their freedom in in Russia or China or other other parts of the world that that are um, you know that are um, headed by authoritarian or totalitarian uh, regimes. And we must follow, I think, the lead here of, of both uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who made every effort during the days of the Cold War to stand with Russian dissidents, uh, uh, for example. And um, it's significant that when Margaret Thatcher went to, uh, to Russia uh, in um, 1987, uh, she actually went on uh, Russian television and she uh, delivered a, a robust defense of the freedoms and liberties that make uh, the West the, the great bastion of, of freedom in the world. And it was a rallying cry that she made, of course, to the Russian, uh, to the Russian people, which, which eventually, of course, they, they adopted themselves. But it, it's important that the leaders of the free world stand up for those values and fight for, for the freedom of those who are fi fighting for those liberties in totalitarian 
uh, uh, societies. And the messaging sent by the leaders of the United States and the European nations is fundamentally uh, important because we are engaged in a, in a tremendous uh, conflict on so many different uh, you know, different fronts. It's, it's, a, it's also an ideological battle. It's a battle of ideas. We must be fully engaged in that. And you can be sure that the Russians and the Chinese are doing all they can to try and undermine uh, the fabrics of our own uh, democratic uh, uh, societies. And so, so much to be, to be gained, I think, from, from the example of both Reagan and Thatcher in this, in this uh, regard. Uh, just to, to conclude, um, uh, Reagan referenced in his Westminster speech um, Winston Churchill during the, the dark days of World War II. And at one point, uh, Churchill asked of our enemies during World War II, what kind of people do they think we are? And Reagan, in his speech, responded by saying, we are free people worthy of, of freedom and determined not only to remain so, but to help others gain their freedom as well. Immensely powerful words spoken decades ago, but so relevant in today's world uh, as as well. And as, as Churchill, Reagan, and Thatcher did, we must recognize our adversaries for what they are, the enemies of, of our freedom. And we must aggressively confront attempts by Russia, China, and other repressive regimes to undermine democracy and the principles of liberty and freedom uh, across uh, across the world, uh, but uh, most grateful to the uh, National Endowment for Democracy for this uh, for this very powerful report, um, and and I urge um, as many policymakers as, as possible and opinion formers as possible to read this report because it is uh, an extremely uh, uh, timely and vital contribution to our understanding of the way in which. Um, our enemies are, are seeking to, uh, to undermine democracy and democratic thought and the principles of liberty across across the free world. Thank you. Thank you, Nav. Very well said. <laughs> if I could just point out that we've now been joined by um, Kai Gershman, president of the National Endowment for Democracy, and um, I'm sure highly instrumental in getting this whole project started. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, I just wondered if I could quickly ask um, our speakers to reflect on how we are rising to those challenges um, that are being faced by sharp power from abroad. Um, is the current administration uh, moving forward in a, in, in a constructive direction? Um, are we seeing an increase of focus on this, or are we... Are we still at the very infant stages of, of, of trying to grapple with the challenges? So I, I would put it this way. I think there's, um, there's improvement that's visible in how we're looking at these issues, and that's in part because we're starting to see them a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think what Niall said is, is absolutely on target. You know, this is really a challenge for... Um, the United States and its democratic allies. Um, this, this challenge is facing countries, fantastic allies like Australia, which is really um, struggling right now to manage uh, the pressures that its system is facing, some of which Peter alluded to. Um, we don't have enough time to go into the laundry list of challenges that Australia is facing, but I would really emphasize this notion of uh, solidarity among the, the free societies as a way to get at this, um, I think you're starting to see some positive responses now um, 
in the space relating to the universities. I think we have uh, considerable work to do, and this has been a long time in the making, on um, how we compete in the ideas space um, and in the information realm more effectively. Uh, the investments that are coming, as, as we discussed earlier, from these very powerful authoritarian states are enormous. And I think we've had a um, pretty passive and languid approach over the last dozen-plus years on these sorts of things. And that requires some adjustments and some real thought about, frankly, how we defend both our values and our interests. Because I think the more you, you look at what Russia and China are doing, I think Peter was extremely uh, eloquent on what how China pursues this, the Chinese authorities. Um, their, their energies, uh, their activities, their interests are informed by their values. And that's to restrict thought and restrict challenges to the authorities. It uh, is anathema to freedom. And I think once we understand that better, we're in a much better position to have a, a meaningful response. So I think we're, we're starting, but we still have a long way to go. How do you evaluate where we are? Well, we're in the very beginning of a discussion, I think. Mm -hmm. But the, the positive signs are that both the executive branch and Congress see a need to have an assessment done. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the problem? Because if you if you sort of jump the gun and say, we have these huge issues, as, for example, the CSIS director did a couple of years in Canada, go in Canada, you're not, you haven't brought people along to this place where, where you might be as director of CSIS. Mm -hmm. You haven't walked people up. You haven't educated them. You don't have a, a sense of, of what the scope and scale is. And if you, you need that scope and scale first to be able to establish sort of what are the lines that are appropriate. Um, because legislators are always going to be the ones that have to draw the line between legal and illegal. Government resources are always going to be more focused on the illegal portion of it. And that's an important piece to get. But then it becomes a question of how do you manage the things that are happening in public space that aren't purely legal or illegal. And this is where we're, we're probably behind Australia, mm -hmm. where I think Australia has 10 to 12 journalists that don't speak Chinese as a background, but understand how to report on these issues, understand how to investigate it, understand the terminology. Mm -hmm. And we really only have a handful of people here in the United States who are prepared to sort of carry on the discussion and and to keep a, a conversation going about, well, what is the appropriate kind of engagement? Is this okay or is this not okay? Mm -hmm. And we are a democracy. We can't just restrict what people do, even if, even if it seemed somehow appropriate. This is something that we have to decide as a people about what is what is useful or what kind of engagement is productive. And that can only be done by an informed conversation. Okay. Uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, I'm more optimistic on the, you know, on the U.S. side than I am uh, about the European side at the moment. I, I do think that there, there's a, uh, a tremendous growing awareness uh, here in the United States, especially among you know, policymakers here in Washington, of the uh, of, of the gravity of of the Russian threat and Russian efforts to undermine uh, democracy, democratic values, and um, uh, and if you look at a lot of the measures that have been uh, been implemented in the last um, you know few months, for example, a crackdown on Russia Today, 
which is just a you know a Kremlin propaganda channel. And so there's been U.S. action taken against RT. Uh, the United States has sanctioned over 200 Russian individuals and entities uh, over the past few months, um, and uh, uh, the United States is sending um, over and over again uh, a message of tremendous support for. For U.S. allies in uh, Eastern Europe, threatened by, uh, you know, by by Russia, um, and that includes, of course, Ukraine, and uh, you know, a decision by by the United States to uh, to send defensive weapons to Ukraine. So we're seeing a significant strengthening of the U.S. position and understanding of all of the ways that the Russians are operating, whether it's a hard power or sharp power, and we're seeing a very robust U.S. response. In Europe, I, I have to say, we're seeing movement in the opposite direction. A lot of backsliding, and I think that, um, you know, there's a real atmosphere of complacency, especially in Western Europe, in Brussels, and Berlin, and Paris. Um, significantly, and, and this, this is important, um, the strongest force in Europe that is standing up to Russia right now is uh, Brexit Britain. The British government is leading efforts to confront Russia's nefarious um, attempts to undermine uh, uh, freedom in, in, in Europe. And there is no stronger adversary for Russia in Europe than the, uh, than the British government at, at this, this time. Um, and there's, there's a lot of suggestion, for example, that which is completely false in my view, you know, that Brexit actually works to, to Russia's uh, benefit. Exactly the opposite. What you've seen in the Brexit era is Britain becoming much more forceful in standing up to uh, to the Russians? Uh, you're seeing uh, Britain moving closer to the United States. Uh, you're seeing actually the NATO alliance being significantly strengthened. Actually, um, so you know uh, Brexit actually is bad news for uh, for Moscow because Brexit means the strengthening of the special relationship, the transatlantic bond, uh, the transatlantic alliance, which is what the Russians fear the most. We're just about almost out of time, but if, if there is one question here, we could uh, maybe right here down in the front, we have a um, microphone, so please uh, identify yourself. Um, Jonathan Ward, Atlas Organization. We work on India and China. Um, so quick question for Peter and also one for Dr. Gardner. Um, Peter, when you're describing the sort of ideological threat as China sees it of democracy to the CCP, I'm wondering if you could describe in any way the threat vector as they see it coming from democratic discourse itself and from the success of democracies. I mean, how much would they actually have to undermine democratic process just to prove it to their own citizens? Um, and then you know, how, how does that look? And to Dr. Gardner, I'm curious, um, you know, I did my PhD in the UK, lived there for five years as a China-India specialist. Um, and I'm curious about the status of what the, um, the Osborne and Cameron government termed the golden decade with China. So there was, of course, this idea that Britain would, in the words of Chancellor Osborne, run towards China for a golden decade, um, largely playing out across business, even universities, et cetera. What does that look like now? Thank you. I wish there were a clear answer to your question, Jonathan. I think at a at a basic level, it's as long as those ideas are put in practice and shown to be working, then they're dangerous. And the more that China can, or that the more that the party can show that things like freedom of the press, that a vibrant civil society, create chaos rather than um, sort of prosperity, then the better off they are. 
Uh, thank you for your, for your questions. It's a very, it's a very interesting uh, question. And um, uh, George Osborne uh, was at that time, of course, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, some tipped him as a you know, possible potential future prime minister. Um, he backed the wrong side, of course, on, on the Brexit uh, debate. And now he's the, the editor of the London Evening Standard. Um, but, uh, you know, as you, as you point out, I think under the Cameron administration, there was definitely a move towards sort of extending the hand of friendship to, uh, uh, to China in many respects, uh, to advance, um, uh, you know, an economic, um, agenda. Uh, I think that, um, certainly today, uh, I'm Britain is looking to, to sign post-Brexit you know, free trade agreements with, you know, with nations across, across the world. And China, of course, is a very important, uh, market for, for British, uh, for British goods. And Britain, of course, has, you know, significant historic, um, role in that, in that region with, uh, with, with, uh, Hong Kong, of course, and also, um, in Southeast Asia with, uh, Singapore, Malaysia and so on. Uh, but, um, at, at the same time, I, I think that there are many voices, uh, you know, within, um, Within the British government, within the Conservative Party in Britain, who are urging caution with regard to dealings with uh, with China, um, and um, you know, I think that you are going to see uh, the British adopting, um, on the one hand, a pragmatic approach on the economic front, but also a clear-eyed approach in, approach in terms of what they're dealing with in terms of China's ambitions in in Asia. Uh, and uh, China's uh, ambitions to, um, you know, to spread its own sort of uh, you know, influence as a rising, rising power. And I think Great Britain and the United States will be working closely together to, uh, to challenge that. Um, so I, I don't, I don't believe that the British government uh, will be, um, you know, holding back from confronting China where necessary. And I, I would like to see Britain taking a more aggressive role, actually. In terms of, um, you know, confronting, uh, aggressive actions by, uh, by, by China, just as Britain is confronting the Russians, uh, China poses, uh, as well, I mean, a, uh, a significant, uh, threat on the world stage to, to many of our interests. Uh, and Britain, I think, has an important role, uh, to play in, uh, in, in doing so. And so, uh, I, I expect that will be the case in the, uh, in the coming years, but I, but I thought it was a very, um, you know, uh, a very good question that you had. Thank you. Okay, well, I think we will wrap up the program here. Um, it is uh, 12 noon, so uh, we will have more programs on subjects such as these, and I hope that you will come back to join us. Meanwhile, join me in uh, thanking our speakers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.